Please turn in your Bibles. The passage upon which our teaching is based this morning comes out of Proverbs chapter 3. As we're continuing in our study of the wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs chapter 3, this morning we are looking at beginning at verse 13 and going to the end of the chapter at verse 35. So think about the song, that great hymn the choir just sang, Amazing Grace, Unending Love. And know now that as we turn our hearts and our attention to the very word of God, that God is encountering and confronting us and meeting us here with his unending love and his wisdom that was demonstrated and manifested specifically in Jesus Christ. So let's turn our hearts and our full attention to worship the Lord through the reading and the preaching of his word. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would pour out your spirit to do what only your spirit can do. That is, take your word and apply it to our hearts and our minds and our lives, to open our hearts, to enable us to not only see our sin, but to see the wonder of your grace. To not only see ourselves, but to see the glory of Christ, to behold his beauty so, Holy Spirit, please make Jesus beautiful to our lives as we proclaim him in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, Evie and I had the opportunity to spend some time with my parents, go out to dinner with them. In fact, we went up to Ruby Tuesdays where Joel works. Got to say, I love as a father being able to say, um, Joel, I'll have more of those rolls, please. That brings great joy to my heart to see him bringing me the biscuits. And, doing, and of course, he'll listen to this on tape. I'll probably get a call at some point from him on that. But one of my favorite things about living in Florida is the opportunity to spend some time with my parents 
And for those of you who don't know, I know many of you do know, my dad has been for the past several years suffering with dementia. So his memory is not what it was, but we still have sweet times together. And really, it's fun to just go out and, you know, one of the things that I notice when we go out is what he's losing is his short-term memory. His long-term memory is still very much intact, and he has that. So we're, we're there we're sitting at dinner, and Mom and Evie are talking, and my dad and I are talking. And we're sharing memories, and I happen to ask him the question. I said, Dad, the Yankees are starting up soon. He, now, he's the one who taught me all about sports and baseball and all of that. I said, are you looking forward to the start of baseball season? He quickly shifted the topic to actually something that was a better topic anyway. He's remembering with a special fondness the times we had when he and I used to coach. They didn't have travel team back then. It was Little League baseball. And when I was in high school, he and I would coach my youngest brother, DJ, who was eight years younger than me, and we'd coach his team in Little League baseball. And that was particularly memorable to him. And I was very thankful for that because it was very memorable to me as well. And I remember especially those times my dad would gather the team together, and it was a learning time for me as well as for him as I'd remember him imparting wisdom, how to play together as a team, how to work together, how to build character, how to have discipline. He'd always say playing the game the right way. I didn't always know what that meant. I know what it means a little bit more now than I did then play with character and sportsmanship. He would always teach us. There were lessons from our winning, but there were even more lessons from when we lost together. Reminded me of a quote I read this week. I'll just kind of dovetail this a little bit from Michael Jordan. Probably people say the greatest basketball player to ever live, although I think Steph Curry fans are now starting to charge against that a little bit. But Michael Jordan said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I blew it. I missed. I have failed over and over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. And it reminds me of the father, the sage, the wise counselor in the book of Proverbs, because you've got to paint this picture because it's more description than prescription. What you have as we're reading the book of Proverbs that we've been studying is the sage, the wise counselor, imparting to his neophyte, neophyte son, a young man who's just starting out on his journey, and he's embarking to him at a pursuit of a life of wisdom. He's outlining for him the benefits of this life of wisdom. And so whether you're a parent teaching your children, a grandparent, your grandchildren, aunt or uncle, Think about what we do in the church when we baptize an infant or baptize a child. We take a vow together that we are going to impart wisdom, the wisdom of the faith and the admonition of the Lord that we say we are all going to impart to one another. When men disciple men, when women in the Titus 2 ministries disciple women, what are we doing? We are imparting the faith, the doctrine of our forefathers, of the apostles and the prophets. We're passing that on to others. What we're doing is like this sage to his son. And what you see, especially here in these opening chapters of the book of Proverbs, explaining to the son how to live a life wholeheartedly trusting the Lord. Centering your life on the fear of the Lord, not making him a compartment of your life. The Lord is not Sunday morning and then you live for yourself. But the fear of the Lord, which is the foundation and the centerpiece of wisdom, Trusting the Lord wholeheartedly and not leaning on your own understanding. And as we've been saying, as we've been reading 
and doing this study is that we have to be very, very careful because it's very easy to misread or misunderstand the Proverbs. You look at this in the Proverbs, what we're doing here in chapter 3, here's the sage saying, here are the real benefits of wisdom, and they're real benefits. He talks about the riches and material gain and long life, and here's where we have to be very careful, and this is why I said it's descriptive, not prescriptive, because it's very easy for us to see things like long life and material gain and riches as kind of a formulaic algebra equation. If I do this, this will happen which is not the teaching of scripture at all from beginning to end. Tremper Longman, who has written a commentary on the Proverbs, and he was one of my Old Testament professors, had this to say about this passage. He says, wisdom, while not fail-safe, is the most certain route to legitimate and long-lasting gain. Wisdom is the road to a long and peaceful life. Living by the principles of wisdom will minimize obstacles and threats to life. But very carefully, he says, this is not a guarantee all you have to do is read things like the book of Job, Psalm 73, the letters of Paul when he says, I consider that my present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to become. But the life of wisdom is still the root to human flourishing, even as we steward our suffering, even when we don't have material gain, human flourishing as God designed it is in union with him. It is, if I could define it this way, the God life in action. If I can put Proverbs in the context of the New Testament, Peter, and I was very glad Andrew quoted Peter in his pastoral prayer earlier because in Peter's second letter, he gives what I think is one of the most amazing verses talking about the Christian life. He talks about through the very great and precious promises of God, we come to participate in the divine nature. That is actually in a very amazing verse. Do you know what that means? That means the Christ nature actually lives in us. And the life of wisdom is the united life with Christ, the God life in action as we trust God wholeheartedly and as we love God and love our neighbor. Verse 13, this particular section is an Old Testament beatitude. It begins with the word blessed. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. It's much like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness. And the word blessed, in a very objective sense, does not mean happy in the sense of, I get my way at all costs, but it means happy in the sense of a life of human flourishing which is found alone in God. And Ray Ortland puts it this way. He says, wisdom is the open secret of the universe. And not only is it the open secret of the universe, but it also does something. It creates something. Wisdom creates a culture of life amid this culture of death called our world. Wisdom is a community experience. It is a shared experience. It is a shared experience of life in its fullness. And the church is God's strategy for this full life of redemption and restoration of the world and creation. And he finishes saying, this requires more than good intentions, more than correct doctrine, it requires the wisdom of God. The thesis of this particular passage is 
For the one who finds wisdom, who gets understanding, there is a tremendous value. The text tells us two things, extolling the value of wisdom. So let's ask the question, what is wisdom's value? And let's answer it in these two things. We see that in a life of wisdom, you have the life of true security, and you have a life or a community of true love. And I want you to think about, aren't those two things we're seeking for and longing for? If we were to truly be aware of ourselves, don't we long for and ache for security and love? And I want you to think about something Jesus said. Jesus in John 14, 27 says, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. You ever notice that every gospel promise is always going to be in contrast to the world? We're all looking for security. We're all looking for love. But there's something about how it's offered in Jesus that is different and in contrast to how the world offers it. So wisdom, the wisdom that is found in God through Jesus alone, is a life of true security and is a shared experience, a community of true love. Let's take a look at each one of these things. Look with me at verse 13, and then I want you to jump down at verse 18 for a second. So I want to show you something about this text, okay? The first section, we're looking now at a life of true security. It says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. And then verse 18, it says, she, lady wisdom, wisdom being personified as a, as a woman, is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Notice how Solomon begins and ends. He ends it both with blessed. The overall thrust of this section is that wisdom enriches everyone who finds it. Wisdom will not disappoint. Wisdom will not let you down. Wisdom enriches the life of everyone who finds it, and it does so in at least two ways. Because wisdom is available to everyone. Verse 13, when it says, blessed is the one, the word one is the Hebrew word Adam. Not the proper name Adam, but the word Adam, which means man or the generic mankind or humankind, which means here that wisdom in this sense, in this first sense, is available to everyone. And like grace, theologians distinguish this in two ways. There is common grace, and then there is special or saving grace. And the first part of wisdom that is being talked about, the first sense here, is the sense of common grace. When verse 13 says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom, this is referring to the goodness and the giftedness and the blessings that are showered on the human race. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. God doesn't withhold talents and abilities and gifts. He gives them to all men. Whenever you see skill, whenever you see beauty, whenever you see expertise, it is a gift from God. Do you love good literature? Do you love Shakespeare? Do you love music? Do you love sports? Do you love the beautiful day that it is outside? Do you love going to the beach? Do you love a great meal? They are all gifts from God. I put in our reflection this morning, listen to how Calvin put it. When he says, whenever we come upon giftedness in secular writers, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. Shall we count anything praiseworthy or noble without recognizing at the same time that it comes from God? 
Christians of all people should love the creation and love beauty for it's a gift of God. Christians of all people should come to appreciate and learn from all things because we see all things. We see even in the non-believer gifts from God. Verse 14 says, For the rain from wisdom is better than gain from silver. Her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewel. You know what the sage is saying? He's saying, do you see money and what it's worth? Wisdom is far better. Do you see these great jewels, these great... Wisdom is far better. Bruce Waltke put it, wisdom is skill at living life well. Money is not. Money can put food on the table. Wisdom puts laughter around the table. Money can buy a house. Wisdom makes it a home. Money can buy a woman jewelry, but wisdom wins her heart. All the ways of wisdom are pleasantness. You can't say that about money. Now that's common grace. How much more when you look with me at verse 18, where the sage says, son, where the elder says to the one he's shepherding, when the grandfather says to his grandson, Lady Wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Now, biblical scholars, put on your biblical hat. Does that tree of life remind you of anything? Have you ever heard of that phrase before? Do you know your Bible? I want you to think about this because what is the sage doing? He is recalling the earth made as God's home and placed in the middle was a garden. In the midst of that garden, God placed the tree of life. And unfortunately, after the fall, after man's sin, Genesis 3 tells us God drove them from the garden, placed the cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, to bar access to the tree of life. Now, why would God do that? Was God being mean? No. God was protecting the man because if he tried to get to the tree of life in his sinful state, he would only be subject and would only suffer the curse and the wrath because redemption, though promised, had not yet come. See, what was necessary for wisdom to be a tree of life to those who lay hold of her? Laying hold of her is the fulfillment of wisdom, which is Jesus Christ. And in Deuteronomy 21, we read, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Galatians 3.13, Paul comes back to these words when he says Jesus was cursed by God on a tree. So in other words, as Tremper Longman again puts it, Adam and Eve were prevented from extending their life by access to the tree of life so that through wisdom we're given access once again to that tree. Jesus was cursed so that we could truly be blessed. Have you laid hold of Jesus Christ and Christian, are you continuing to lay hold of Jesus Christ? Do you learn from how he treated people? Do you learn, if he is wisdom manifest, do you learn from how the gospel depicts him relating to people, both his compassion and his strength, his weakness and his power? And see, and the text goes on. Look at verse 19. He continues, he says, this is built into creation. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. In other words, creation is ordered. It's not random, and it's ordered by wisdom. Are you To live by wisdom as manifested in Jesus Christ is living by the design and the rhythms of creation. 
rhythms of work and rest, with rhythms having to do with your family. That's living by God's creation design that's ordered by God. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Verse 20 gives us the detail that the clouds in the present tense sustain the earth and God's creation by dropping down the dew. In the present, even the dew drops are by the wisdom of God. Ray Ortland quotes a meditation. It's a little lengthy, but I want to read it for you because I think it's just tremendous to get you thinking about the wisdom and power of God from John Piper. And it's a Thanksgiving meditation that John Piper happened to write years ago. Dr. Piper writes, picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East, far from any lake or stream. A few wells keep the family and the animals supplied with water. But if the crops are to grow and the family is to be fed with month to month, water has to come on the fields from another source. From where? Well, the sky. The sky? Water will come out of the clear blue sky? Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles, then be poured out from the sky onto the fields. Carried, you say? Well, how much does it weigh then? Piper writes, well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 27,878,400 cubic feet of water, which is 206,300,160 gallons, which is 1,650,501,280 pounds of water. That's heavy, you think? So how does it get up in the sky and stay up there if it's so heavy? Well, there's this process called evaporation. Really? That's a nice word. What does it mean? It means that the water so sort of stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down. Huh. Then how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's condensation? Well, the water being water again by gathering around little dust particles between 0.00001 and 0.001 centimeters wide. That's tiny. What about the salt? Salt? Well, yes. The Mediterranean Sea is salt water. That would kill the crops. So what about the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. Oh, so the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea, takes out the salt, carries it for several hundred miles, and then dumps it on the crops. Well, it doesn't quite dump it, because if it dumped it, it would crush the crops. Picture a billion pounds of water dumped on the farm. The wheat would be totally gone. So the sky dribbles the billion pounds of water down in little dewdrops. The clouds drop down the dew by the wisdom of God. If that's the wisdom of God in creation and Jesus Christ has become wisdom for you personally and for the church to be God's strategy of demonstrating the validity of the sending of Jesus Christ into the world to show the world that God sent Jesus into the world, how much power and wisdom is available to us to live. The only question is, do we value it? The application question is, we find other things more important to God than God. The question is a question of allegiances. 
We find our family, we find our work, we find our sports, we find our meals, we find our health, we find our retirement, we find our pleasure more important than God. What is wisdom's value? Has wisdom become a tree of life that you've laid hold of? If that's the sage passing wisdom on to his son, how much more is God saying to you, my son? Do not despise these things. Resourcefulness and discretion, sound wisdom and discretion. What is wisdom's value? Do you see this? It is the only true security and the only true life. That's why Dr. Ortland calls it the open secret of the universe. But it also creates something. What does it create? It creates a community of true love. Look with me at verse 27. Verse 27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Ah, tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you now. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. I'm afraid there's a whole sermon in that, and I'll only touch upon that one. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of the, his ways, for this devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he's scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Friends, I want you to notice something with me. The movement of almost everything in the Bible is always two-directional. God and others. The Ten Commandments, two tables of the law. Love God, the first four commandments. Love others, love neighbor, commandments five through ten. Jesus' summary of it in the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Shema of Deuteronomy 6, describing the covenant people of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you pass that faith, that wisdom, on to your children, write it on the tablets of your heart, write it on your doorposts, speak about it when you're walking, when you're sitting. Make that and love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the movement of wisdom. Verses 13 to 26 were all about our relationship to God. And then in verse 27, the movement, do not, hold with, do not withhold good from whom? Those to whom it is due. Do not envy violent men. Do not, you know, don't say to somebody who asks you for something, and they're asking for hospitality, say, oh, I'll get to it another day. So in other words, the movement of wisdom is Godward and horizontal towards loving your neighbor. Here in verse 27 and following, we're told not to withhold good from those to whom it is due, to seek our neighbor's good, protect them, show them hospitality, open your heart to them, love them, not be envious of the wicked, not be envious of the violent. Again, Tremper Longman says, the wise are attentive to the needs of their community, particularly those who live near them. The wise person does nothing that would upset the relationships with other people. Ray Ortland again says, we sin against each other not only by the bad things we do, but also by the beautiful things we withhold. Withheld love is life-depleting sin. It is a sin to tell ourselves, well, I'm not doing anybody any harm. The question is, what good are you withholding? 
A culture of life is where people love each other openly and eagerly with the love of Jesus. Are you withholding good from your neighbor? I had a man who poured into me, discipling me over 20 years ago, and he taught me to visualize it this way, and I've not let go of this visual image. He said, is your life like a big front porch? Big front porch that's very wide, lots of rocking chairs on it, able to be open, serving southern sweet tea, giving that so that people of all kinds feel like they can share their doubts and their struggles and you're open to them? Or do they feel like you're nothing but fault-finding, negative, criti critical, and all you do, you're a closed front porch? Do not, what does verse 30 say? Do not contend with a man who's seeking you no harm. Sometimes I'm wondering if in our insistence to be right all the time, we're having to win the battle and we're losing the war. I want you to think about something out of Jesus' life for a second. As Jesus went to the cross, don't you think he was right when he came before the Sanhedrin and kind of their kangaroo court and brought him up on trial? How about when he came before the high priest, Caiaphas? Was he not right? As he was the son of God, I believe he was. How about when he came before Pilate? Was he not right? And then what did he do? He lost every one of those battles so he could win the war of giving you access to the tree of life. He chose not to contend with the Sanhedrin. He chose not to contend with the high priest. He chose not to contend with Pilate so that for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was his bride, his body, his elect from every nation, elect from all the earth. He might not lose the war and win you. And do you know what he's calling us to? He's calling us to a cross-shaped life. Verse 34 says, Towards the scorners he is scornful, but the humble he gives honor. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually translates this. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The same thing that's cited in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5. How do we do this? Recognize that he gives grace to the humble. And who are the humble? Those who live a cross-shaped life. A cross-shaped life that's a life of sacrifice over me first. A life of weakness over power. A life that gives up your rights, including the right to be right with every battle. That maybe recognizes life comes out of death and winning comes by losing. In conflict, in shepherding, in relationships, are we seeking to win the person or are we seeking to win the argument? The cross-shaped life doesn't have to be right at every point. And the cross, which looked like Think about this, because the text ends, the wise will inherit honor. Did the cross look like the place of wisdom? From human things, the cross certainly did not look like a sign of victory, didn't it? Looked like Jesus lost, but what did he do? He won the war. He won the ultimate battle. And you inherit honor through the wisdom of the cross. We inherit honor 
and are saved and rescued and delivered from disgrace and shame through the folly and the disgrace and the shame of the cross. And do you know how we'll win others? Through the shame and the folly, the foolishness of a cross-shaped life. Do you trust that? Are you seeking the implications? Ask yourself this week. Maybe this is a good question for your community groups. What in our relationships does a cross-shaped life look like? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us to live cross-shaped lives, lives where we inherit honor through the cross, where it's through the cross you have created a community of love and you are creating, as Dr. Ortland says, a culture of life through living together a cross-shaped life. Oh, that we would embark on this journey of wisdom. What did Paul say? Not having arrived there, but forgetting what is behind, I strive, I strain, I move forward to press towards the prize, the goal for which Christ has laid hold of me. We gain the tree of life by laying hold of the wisdom that is in Christ. And we press towards the goal for which Christ has first laid hold of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.